We are going to Second Timothy chapter 3. Um, I just want you to know I am so excited about today's message. You may not be as excited after you hear it as I am, but I just couldn't get enough of the Word of God this week. I kept studying and studying and studying and studying, and it just kept, I couldn't put it down, and hopefully it got into this message this week. It'll be a blessing to you. Second Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 1 says, But know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. Emotionally difficult times will come. Difficult for everyone to bear. Literally what that means. For men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanderers. Without self-control. Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. We began a new series last week called Following Jesus in Today's World. And today I want to talk to you about the second characteristic of the end time culture in the list And that is lovers of money. And I'm calling this misdirected money. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace, power, and anointing and of the Holy Spirit? Would you minister to every single heart profoundly and individually in Jesus' name? And everybody said, Amen. I want to take a moment as you're being seated to welcome all of our locations and our online community and our television audience. We are glad that everyone is here to hear a word from God. Well, you might recall that last week we pointed out that it is becoming more and more challenging to follow Jesus in today's world. Can I get a good amen? Because today's world is a world in which right is wrong and wrong is right. And anyone who claims otherwise is considered narrow-minded, unkind, unloving, and even hateful. Morality has been turned upside down. Biology is no longer relevant or adhered to. Traditional and biblical values are mocked and warped views are now masked as intellectual elitism. Romans prophetically addresses the prevalence and prevalence of this warped intellectual elitism in the end time age when it says in Romans chapter 1, verse number 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, these people will profess to be intellectually elite, to have a corner on the market of what is right and what is wrong, but in actuality, they are fools. And right before that prophetic proclamation, there is a powerful reminder in verse number 16, which says to us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. In other words, in a society and culture that has gone mad, we should proudly and unapologetically and confidently stand on the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. There is still power in the blood to cleanse sin and to make the sinner white as snow. There is still power in the cross to convict 
to the soul of mankind. There is still power in the empty grave to resurrect a life that is spiritually dead. And there is still power in the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, demons have to tremble. At the name of Jesus, hell is on the run. Do not be ashamed of the gospel in these end times. Don't feel like you have to shrink back because society is standing up. Stand up with truth. Stand up with light. Be a light bearer in these dark ages instead of somebody who is afraid because of what society is saying and becoming. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, because the spirit of this age is becoming more and more um, warped, it is becoming more and more challenging to follow Jesus. And the juxtaposition between light and darkness, truth and error, good and evil has never been greater. And if we are not diligent in our discipleship, even God's elect can be led astray. As a pastor, it amazes me how many Christians hold secular views on morality. I'm shocked by it, to be quite frank with you. And all that tells me is that we are spending more of our time listening to culture than we are to Christ. We are spending more of our time feeding our souls over what's happening in the world than we are feeding our souls from the only thing that can nourish our souls, which is the Word of God. And as we came to this text in 2 Timothy chapter 3 last week, we begin to examine the characteristics of the end time age described in this passage of scripture. And we begin with the first one, men will be lovers of themselves or where self will be supreme. And I want to give a shout out to my good friend and mentor, Rick Renner, who wrote about a lot of this stuff in his wonderful book, um, The Last Day Survival Guide. If you want to get it, you'll get some more insights on this. But again, notice that it says, for men will be lovers of themselves, meaning that their love will be misdirected. It will be self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-consumed, in love with themselves more than anyone or anything else. And we talked about how in the original language, this is a spiritual oxymoron, right? Because phileo is the word for love, and that's directed towards somebody else, and self is autos, and and that means yourself, and you're supposed to have this phileo directed at somebody else, but in the end times, what is supposed to be directed outward is going to be directed inward, and so people are going to be literally in love with themselves, and and, and this self-love is going to be expressed in some of the things that we are hearing in our culture right now in a prominent way. It's it's the, the my statements, right? My truth, you know, my reality, my rights, my, 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 my. And we talked last week about the issue of abortion. And we we said that that's grace and truth. We said that, that we express grace for anybody who's gone through or struggling with it, but truth in that life begins even before the womb in the mind and heart of God. And we talked about the statement, my body, my choice, and how that is an exact replica of the satanic temple's statement on abortion, which says that they are the only church, right, that can claim a religious exemption because one of their rituals requires the sacrifice of a child to maintain self autonomy and bodily empowerment, right? And so we said that this is a sign of the end of the age. We are coming to a place where where self is going to be um, the number one thing. People are going to be in love with themselves. Now, to be sure, it's okay to have a healthy 
Love for yourself, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. We're not talking about, you know, in the end times, Christians should hate themselves, right? That's not what we're talking about. A healthy love for yourself and who God has created you to be, that you are a masterpiece of Almighty God. So you should appreciate you. You should love you. But we're not, that's not what the Holy Spirit is saying. The Holy Spirit is saying everything is going to be revolve around me. That is the sign of the end time society. But then he gives a second thing. I don't want to spend a little time on this, and each week we'll go through one or two of these characteristics. He says, people will be lovers of money. This is the second sign of the end time society. Now, let me again say, just like there's nothing wrong with loving yourself, there's nothing wrong with having money. Aren't you glad about that, right? Because everybody in the room, anybody got any money? Anybody got from one penny to oodles? Anybody got from one? Anybody in that category, right? So everybody in here has got money. So thank God there's nothing wrong with having money. Thanking, thank God there's nothing wrong with being blessed. Matter of fact, it's not my topic, but there are literally oodles and oodles and oodles of scripture. Oodles. Okay. You know what an oodle is? It's a lot. Oodles of scripture that make it clear that God wants his children blessed and blessed big time, right? And and more blessed than we can contain, more blessed than we can imagine, more blessed than we even thought possible. And the scripture tells us this in many places. Here's an example. It's not my subject, so I'm not going deep on this. But Deuteronomy 8.18 says, And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And by the wealth, by the way, wealth is not just having money, right? Because, for instance, I asked you before, how many of you has money from a penny to oodles? Everybody raised their hand. But if I said how many of you are wealthy, not everybody would raise their hand. So, so wealth is different than just possessing money. But notice what God does. He gives us the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. If money were bad, God wouldn't want his kids to have wealth. God wouldn't give them the power to have wealth. But there's a heart behind God's blessing and us as God's kids having wealth that God expects us to have, and that is in the the setup to Deuteronomy chapter 8. In the setup to verse number 18, beginning in verse number 11, it says this, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you this day. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, have built beautiful houses and dwell therein. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and, and all that you have is multiplied. Now jump down to verse 17. Then you shall say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gained me this wealth. Then the very next verse says, for you shall remember it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to get wealth to establish his covenant. And so let me modernize this for you. Do not forget when you have a steady income. Do not forget when your bank accounts are full. Do not forget when your stock portfolios and investments are off the charts, although they're dipping a little bit right now. Do not forget when you're living good, when you're in a beautiful home, when you maybe own many of them. Do not forget when you're driving a nice car, dressing good, eating good, living good, that it was God who gave you life, that it was God who delivered you from the bondage of sin and saved your soul and snatched you out of the kingdom of darkness and put you into the kingdom of light. Do not forget the cross. Do not forget the empty grave. Do not forget the kingdom that he has prepared for you. Do not forget how he has brought you through. Don't 
Don't forget that your talent comes from him. Don't forget that your ability comes from him. That it was his help, his power, his hand, his goodness, his kindness, his grace, his favor, his doing. And don't you dare say that it was your power. Don't get it twisted. Nobody is self-made, but you may be God-made. Amen? That's the heart behind wealth. It's, it's, it's not that God is opposed to it, but God is opposed to, in the end of times, money having people instead of people having money, right? And the Greek word for lovers of money is similar to the Greek word for lovers of self. It's phileo, to be fond of, to have a love or an attraction or a romantic feeling toward another. And the second part is argoros which means material possessions. And when you put them together, it describes somebody who has an abnormal preoccupation or profound fixation with money, which, by the way, can be a stronghold for not just those who have wealth, but those who don't. Did you hear what I said? I, I, I I know people from really rich to really poor. And sometimes the really poor have no cares about money in terms of it doesn't rule their life or anything. I'm sorry, the really rich, no cares, doesn't rule their life. They could take it or leave it. But the really poor are always trying to, everything they talk about is money, 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 money. So it's not a matter of material possession to determine whether money has you or doesn't have you. It's a matter of your heart attitude. And the Bible says that there will come a time at the end of times where some people will have an unhealthy fixation and preoccupation with money where everything they do is strictly driven by the acquisition of stuff. It's getting quiet because I'm, I'm walking on toes right now, right? Because people get funny when you talk about money. No, I'm, just, I'm just playing. But the Bible has more to say about money than heaven and hell. Right? But it's never that money is bad. It is the love of money that is bad. So this insatiable, misdirected uh, a view of money where it's just the acquisition of it and everything. And in some t- places in scripture, it's called covetousness, right? Covetousness is not just stealing, right? But it's, but it's wanting something so bad that you're willing to do whatever you have to do to get it. Ben, borrow, cheat, and steal in order to get it. And Jesus tells us how we can tell if, if we are on the wrong track when it comes to money or the right track when it comes to money. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So really, here's all you ever have to do to find out what you love most. Open up your checkbook. And, and just look at where everything is going. And that will tell you automatically what you love the most. I've always had this thing that I've tried to live by. Most of the time I've been successful. Some of the times not so in complete honesty. But I've always tried for my, for my largest um, uh, 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 check going out to always be to God. That's, that's, that's me. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but I've always, I've always tried to do that. I want the largest check going out. I want the check going out to be bigger than my mortgage. I want the check going out to be bigger than, you know, what I spend on me. I want the check going out to always be biggest to God because he's the one who gave me the power to get wealth. Amen. I don't ever want to forget. I don't ever want to forget that God is the one that did it. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what is the biblical cure? For not being a lover of money. Well, it's tithes and offerings. And, and by the way, the, the offerings have already been taken. 
So nobody has to feel like we're doing this to get an offering, okay? I just want you all to know, I, I love every person. I, I very rarely know how much anybody gives. I purposely try to not know because I don't want to love people based on what they give. So, so, so my love for you is unconditional. It has nothing to do with what you, what you give. But the Bible says that the way that the cure for not being a lover of money is tithes and offerings. It is vital for us to determine that first and foremost, we dedicate our resources to God and his kingdom, resourcing and advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ as our primary priority. We all have that responsibility as the children of God, right? Recently, and some of you may not even be aware of this, but some of you may, Recently, there has been the resurgence of an old erroneous doctrine, which attempts to absolve people of the responsibility to tithe, stating that tithing is a law thing and not a grace thing. And since it's a law thing and not under grace, then we don't need to do it. And the uprising of this doctrine doesn't surprise me in light of what I just told you about the end time society. Because the plan of the enemy in the end time society is to defund the church. And the reason why the plan of the enemy in the end time society is to defund the church is because if you defund the church, you, you stop the voice that is the restrainer of the immorality in end time society. And so what the enemy wants to do with end time society is move all money outside of the gospel or from the gospel to the culture. But what does God say he wants to do at the end time? He wants the wealth of the wicked to be laid up for the just. So God wants to trans from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light so that we can be the greatest voice in these end times. But what the enemy wants to do is he wants to move it from the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness so there is no counterbalance, come on somebody, to the gospel. That's why God has put it on my heart aggressively. He said, your next, your next 10 years, I want you to do more television and more digital media than you've ever done in your life. I want you to ramp it up to insane levels. And I said to the Lord, why? And he said, because, because the end time way of reaching the masses, and you're seeing it, right? You're seeing it now. You're seeing the shift. Right? Everybody is getting what they get digitally, right? They're getting what they get from the media type of thing. And so what, what can we do as Christians? We can either shrink back, right? And we can be happy with us four and no more, right? Well, at least we're, at least we're talking to a few hundred or a few thousand on the weekend. No! No way! I believe we're part. We're part of the end time revival. I believe we're part of the solution. I believe we've got the answer. I believe we need to be in front of every single person that we can be to preach the light. Ramp it up. And so God's, God's solution is tithes and offerings. So, so what is the tithe? It goes without saying that it means tenth. It's the first ten percent of all the wealth that God gives us that we are to honor him with and sow into the gospel through our local church or the place where we get spiritually fed. The scripture tells us emphatically that the tithe belongs to God and never once does it say it doesn't, right? It's amazing to me how the scripture only says it belongs to God. Never once it says it doesn't, but there are people who say, oh, you don't have to do it. Based on what? It also refers to, in, in scripture, as the first fruits, or the first 10%, uh, and, and because it's the first of many, of everything that follows, it carries with it a protective covering on everything else. And that's why when you hear uh, 
there's the tithe taught, it says, and God will rebuke the devourer. Why? Because when you, what you do with the first determines what happens to the less, the rest. Now here's, here's the big thing about the tithe. The reason. The reason for the tithe is to express our love and honor to God for being the source of our wealth and blessing and of our life and redemption. Now the first mention of the tithe is, it's probably not the first mention but it's the first time the word tithe is used. So I really think it's the second mention. But just because I don't want to go back and reteach even further, I will say it's the first mention of the tithe is, is when Abraham brought a tithe to Melchizedek in Genesis chapter number 15. Now, Abraham, we know, is the father of our faith. Abraham uh, made war, got 318 of his servants, and they went out against, against five kings. Right? Five kings with full armies. Abraham got 318 of his servants and went out against these five kings that assembled themselves in, in, in conjunction with the king of Sodom because Abraham wanted to rescue Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. From, from Sodom and Gomorrah. We forget that some of these things are in the Bible. You know, why, why did, why did God's judgment get released on Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying again to, to hurt anybody who struggles with different things. But we have to remember there are things in the Bible that are really there. They're not made up. And they're there because that kind of lifestyle is not a lifestyle that pleases God. Right? Nowadays we have monkeypox coming out. Anybody heard of the monkeypox? Right? It's primarily 95% transmissible through gay intercourse. 95% percent transmissible through gay intercourse. And so what what Abraham wanted to do is he wanted to to grab Lot out of this place of sin. He wanted to remove him out and and the king of Sodom wouldn't let him go. So Abraham said, "Well, I'm going to take my forces and I'm going against the five kings." And Abraham goes in there and with 318 he defeats five kings. And their armies. How many of you know if God is for you, who can be against you? It doesn't really matter. When the odds are stacked against you, if God is on your side, and he goes in there, and because he won the war, he won the spoil to the victor, goes the spoil, right? And as he's coming out, suddenly this figure just pops into scripture. Never once mentioned before. And then he disappears again. Until Hebrews chapter 7. And we're going to look at it in just a minute. And his name is Melchizedek. And, and look what it says. Genesis chapter 14 verse number 18. Then Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Watch this is just amazing. This blew my mind. Brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and he said blessed be Abram of God most high. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemy into your hand and he, Abram, gave him a tithe of all. Now I want you to notice when and why Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe. He gave him a tithe after he had been delivered from his enemies. The five enemy kings that united with the king of Sodom. He gave him a tithe after Melchizedek brought out the bread and wine. He gave him a tithe after Melchizedek blessed him. He, it was a love response to God through the high priest Melchizedek for bringing him out of the hand of his enemy and providing him with bread and wine and putting a blessing on him. That was why and when he gave him the tithe. Now, Melchizedek 
is a type of Jesus. Some actually believe that he was indeed the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but, but Jesus makes appearances in the Old Testament. Just pops up and then disappears and just pops up and then disappears. And, and many believe that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. For sake of argument, let's just say he wasn't. Okay, Let's say all he was was a type of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 verse number 1. I'm going to teach a little bit today. Is that alright? Because I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 7 verse number 1 says, For this Melchizedek, by the way, Hebrews is in what part of the Bible? New Testament, right? So we're obviously getting ready to talk about something that is under grace, right? Because the New Testament is under, under grace, right? Watch this. Matthew, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continuously. Jump down to verse number 14, Hebrews 7. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Now let me tell you why it says that. Because under the law, tithe was given to the Levitical priesthood. But notice what it says right here, oh my God. It says, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, not the Levitical tribe, Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice the comparison. Melchizedek is called king of Salem or king of peace. So is Jesus. Melchizedek is called the high priest of God. So is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 verse number 15. For we have not a high priest who, who, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all point tempted as we are, yet remained without sin. And then it says, therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that you might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Why? Because Jesus is that high priest that didn't arise from the Levitical priesthood, but arose from the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the most high God. He's called Melchizedek, son of righteousness or king of righteousness. So is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 9, 9. He has dispersed aboard. He has given to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. There is no record of Melchizedek's beginning of days and end of days. How many of you know Jesus is the ancient of days? He's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek out of love and honor for delivering him from the hand of five kings and rescuing his nephew Lot from sin. Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light. We are no longer enemies of God, but now we are children of God. We have been snatched out of the pit of hell and we are on our way to heaven. Why do we bring our tithe to Jesus? Because we honor him and because we love him for what he's done for our life. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. 
I mean, this is so obvious. Somebody has to help you miss this. Jesus, Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for our redemption. By his stripes we are healed. What can make me white as snow? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood blood of Jesus. Blah, 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 out of Jesus. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of all because he was grateful. It was a love response. Should we give Jesus any less? Where do people get this from? Why did Abraham give a tithe? Why that amount? Like, why did he just like be like, eh, let me see, hold on. Stuck a few of the coins in my pocket here from the spoiler war. Here you go, Melchizedek. Why, why didn't he do that? Instead, why did he give him a tithe? Well, Hebrews chapter 7, again, gives us a hint. Here's what it says. And by the way, again, Melchizedek um, was a priest. Jesus, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not according to the Levitical priesthood. Not under the law. By the way, Abraham preceded the law. Let me say for the people in the back. Abraham preceded the law. The law wasn't even in existence yet. Right? And, and so he gives them why a tithe. Hebrews chapter 7 verse number 6. But he whose de- genealogy is not derived from them, from the Levites, from those under the law, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. The word receive in the original language is dedicatokin. It's the Greek word which means to share or take this share by right. To take this share by right. In other words, Abraham understood this was the share that belonged to God, right? And so Abraham gave the tithe through the high priest Melchizedek, who is a type of Jesus, the king, because when the king of Sodom came to attack him and he was delivered from it. And then after he gave the tithe, I want you to see this. The king of Sodom meets up with Abraham again, right after it. Here's the exchange. Genesis chapter 15, verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Abraham had won the war. He had everything. He said, give give me the people, keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not accept anything belonging to you not even a thread or strap of a sandal so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Now, do you realize what's happening here? When did Abram lift up his hand to the Lord Most High and make a vow that he would not accept anything that belonged to the king of Sodom so that the king of Sodom couldn't say Abraham made him rich? It's when he gave his tithe. Here's what the tithe does. It says, God, you're my source. I don't... Men are not going to make me rich, God. Men don't give me the power to get wealth, God. So I will never take something that doesn't belong to me. I won't steal, cheat, beg, borrow, or steal in order to get a dollar because I believe, God, you are sovereign. God, you are supernatural. God, you are my source. And God, if I do everything that honors you, I believe that it's you that gives me the power to get wealth. And I'm not going to give a mere man, I'm not even going to get the devil credit for the wealth that I have. God, I want everybody to see you gave it to me God 
Your tithe is your declaration, God, you're my source. You're my source. My job's not my source. My boss is not my source. This world is not my source. God, you are my source. Now watch this. Here's where it gets good. The covenant Abram or Abraham was under was a type and a foreshadow of the new covenant of God's grace. Let me say it again for the people in the back. And the people in the back, I don't mean those in the room. I mean the people out there in la-la land who are preaching false doctrine right now. Okay? The type of covenant that Abraham was under was a type and foreshadow of the covenant that you and I are under, the new covenant of God's grace. How do we know this? Well, first of all, what is the new covenant? The new covenant is a covenant cut between God the Father and God the Son on the cross of Calvary that freely gave us all of the benefits of salvation to anyone who, who would believe. In other words, man had nothing to do with the cutting of the covenant, the new covenant. It was cut strictly between Father and Son on the cross. Man had nothing to do with it, and that's why it's called grace. Grace is basically your works are not responsible for it, right? And that's why the scripture tells us, for, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. There were two times God cut covenant with Abraham. Two times, really probably just one. The second one was probably a response to the covenant that already cut. But let's just say two times again, for sake of argument, right? I can't teach you everything I know all in one, one time, okay? But watch this. The first time is found in Genesis chapter number 15. Incidentally, on the same day that Abraham bought the tithe. On the same day he brought the tithe, God cut a covenant with, with him. And by the way, how many kings did God deliver Abraham from? What is five? It's the number of grace. It's a type and shadow of the new covenant under which we are under. Watch this. Genesis chapter 15, verse number 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. A deep sleep. You know what that means? He had some NyQuil. Anybody ever have some NyQuil? Right? What is that there? Back in the day, you know, the old Italians, they give you some whiskey, right? Knock you right out. NyQuil, I swear, has some whiskey in it, right? It caused you to go into a, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. In other words, he's out. He's got nothing to do with what's about to take place. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. By the way, do you know the other time horror and great darkness fell? When Jesus was on the cross. Y'all remember that, don't you? It says from the 12th hour. Great darkness fell upon the earth. The sun failed to give his light. Can you, can you just see? I don't even have to go any further. Can you see that the, that the Abrahamic covenant is a type and shadow of the new covenant under which we're under? And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed through the pieces. Abraham prepared the sacrifice, put it all out opposite one another. God said, Abraham, time for you to go to sleep. You cannot be involved in this, Abraham. Because if you are involved in this, then the execution of this covenant is dependent upon you. And you are a man. You are going to screw up somewhere along the line and so for the rest of this I gotta take it from here anybody grateful when God says I'll take it from here because you and I are gonna screw it up somewhere along the line God says sleep 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 and 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 these two lights some people call it the greater light and the lesser light right they walk through the pieces who is the greater light and the lesser light it's God the Father and God the Son 
Same thing that was done on Calvary. Same thing that was done. Man had nothing to do with that covenant. Why? Because it is a type and a shadow of the covenant of grace. Second time God cut the covenant with Abraham is on Mount Moriah. Abraham went there to offer up his son. By the way, this was a practice that Abraham was very familiar with. God was redeeming him from the practice. God wasn't, why would God ask him to offer up his son? God wasn't. God was redeeming him from the practice of it. Why? Abraham, when God called him, was a sun and moon worshiper. And as a sun and moon worshiper, one of their rituals, satanic temple, one of their rituals was to offer up their children in worship to God, to their gods. And so God said to him, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, right? He was the son of promise. He was the best son. He was the preferred son. He was the son that the, that, that everything was going to come through. He said, take him now, go offer him up on the top of Mount Moriah. And you remember the story, right? He went up to offer him up on the top of Mount Moriah. Verse number 11 of Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham said, here I am. You know what I believe Abraham did? He went, Whew. How many has ever done one of those when, when you've been believing God for something? Whew. Thank God. I was wondering when your voice was going to come, God. This got a little too close for comfort right here, God. I was believing, but my believing was getting tested right here. He said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So then Abraham lifted up his eyes and there behold him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abram went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And you remember he called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord sees in advance and provides. Do you realize what we just read? First of all, what, what God was saying to Abraham is, I'm not like the other gods. I don't need the blood of you. I don't need the blood of your children because guess what I'm going to do? I'm too just for that. I'm going to shed my own blood so that you could be set free. My own blood is the price of your salvation. Your blood's not good enough. Your blood's not holy enough. Whatever you do with you cannot save you. And so I've got to intervene and do it for you. Abraham, I'm not that kind of God. I'm, I stand alone. I'm different. But then notice what he did. He provided the sacrifice. What happened in the new covenant? On not Mount Moriah, but on Mount Calvary. God said to the whole world, it's not your sacrifice that's going to save you. Let me, let me provide that sacrifice for you. And there God provided the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. And all we have to do is look up and there is our sacrifice. <laughs> Hallelujah. And what did he do? He called the name of that place, Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees in advance. How many of you know Jesus wasn't the lamb that was slain because we, God all of a sudden realized we had a problem with sin? He was a lamb slain from before the foundations of the world, Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees in advance and provides. What am I showing you? I'm showing you that the Abrahamic covenant that he lived under and gave tithes under was a foreshadow of the covenant that you and I have, which is the new covenant based on God's grace. To say that tithing is a law thing is ignorance. It preceded the law. It's something that was instituted as something that was a response to everything that God did underneath the Abrahamic covenant. Now watch this. Galatians chapter 3 verse number 13 tells us about our connection to the Abrahamic covenant. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Say amen. 
Say amen even if you don't know what that means. Say amen. I'm telling you, you ought to be grateful for that. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Can you see the connection between what Christ did and the Abrahamic covenant and the promises of the Abrahamic covenant coming upon us that the blessings of the Gentiles make, the blessings of Abraham may come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice we are linked to the Abrahamic covenant. Matter of fact, I believe the Abrahamic covenant is our covenant concealed. Calvary's cross is our covenant revealed. I believe they're one and the same. I'm not going to argue with you about that, right? But but let's just say they're, they're types and shadows of one another. Secondly, notice that redemption from the curse of the law came through Christ. Which was primarily, not exclusively, primarily spiritual separation from God because it was impossible for man to live up to it and to be made right with God through works. The curse of the law was primarily you can't fulfill it. Ever, anybody ever ask you to do something you can't do? It's a curse. Anybody ever tell you that in order to get this, you have to do this, but you can't do that? That's a curse. You're constantly striving to do it. It's kind of like when I say to Pastor Brandon, try to beat me in basketball. It's a curse. Can't do it. (laughs) Just playing. The curse of the law was you couldn't get right with God by being obedient because no one could fulfill it. So that everything under the law was a form of worship and sacrifice done with a sin and failure consciousness in hope of finding a new and unbroken relationship with God. So tithing underneath the law was to gain God's approval and favor. It was to avert judgment and attract blessing. That was the motivation. But tithing traveled from the Abrahamic covenant through the law, but the reason for the tithe morphed from gratitude in Abraham's case to ingratiation underneath the law. In Abraham's case, I'm giving you this tithe because I love you. It's my response. Under the law, I'm giving you this tithe in order to ingratiate myself to you. I'm giving you this tithe because I don't want you to judge me. I'm giving you this tithe because I want something from you. But then what happened is we come back to the New Testament. And what does Jesus do? Jesus becomes the curse of the law for us. In other words, no longer is your salvation dependent upon anything you do or don't do. It's not that if you don't tithe, you're still going to heaven. You should have said amen because a lot of you, if that wasn't the case, be going to hell. Right? Because my tithe... If I don't tithe, I'm not cursed in the sense that I lose my salvation. In the sense that I don't have a relationship with God anymore worthy of me going into heaven. I don't know about you, but that really ought to get some people excited. Because in the church generally, across the whole church world, I think the tithing statistic is less than 6%. Come on, somebody. So I'm not cursed If I don't tithe, because my tithe doesn't get me God's approval. It doesn't get me relationship with God. So what Jesus did was not do away with the tithe. What Jesus did is he brought it back to the right reason again. 
He said, no longer are you giving it so you can ingratiate yourself to me because in Christ, in my son, you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you have what Jesus did for you, placed upon you, credited to your account. So now the reason why you're giving again is because you are grateful, grateful that you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, grateful that you have been snatched out of hell and that you're on your way to heaven. And because you're grateful, you're now giving God back what belongs to him with the right attitude. The cross put the reason back in the tithe. It didn't remove the tithe. So I'm not cursed if I don't tithe. I don't lose my salvation. But I may lose some of my rewards. But I may lose some of my rewards. Why? In order to receive all the benefits of salvation that Christ paid for and purchased, we must exercise faith. And faith is more than a belief. Faith is a belief with a corresponding action. Is it not? Is it not true underneath the whole new covenant in order to receive all of the promises paid for by Christ, you must exercise faith? Is that not true? Can I see your hand if you know it's true? If you didn't raise your hand, I'll teach you. What is faith? Faith is the exercise of belief with corresponding action. And so James tells us in James 2, 7, this, thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James chapter 1, verse 6 says, if you go to God, you've got to ask in faith, nothing wavering, for if you, if you don't ask in faith, you should not expect to receive anything of the Lord. And so the New Testament promises that have been paid for by Jesus are propitiated in our life as we exercise faith, which is belief and corresponding action. Every single one of them comes through faith, which is belief and corresponding action. And so when we release our faith, tithing is one of the ways we release our faith. It avails us to all the promises that have been purchased for by Jesus on the cross. And that's why the scripture says when you bring all the tithes into the storehouse that God will open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there won't be room enough to receive for. It's been paid for by Jesus. You can't do nothing in and of yourself in order to pay for it, but in order to receive it, you've got to exercise faith and faith is a belief with a corresponding action, right? So then faith, faith is the processing center for the payment that Jesus made. Jesus, and please don't write me about this, because hear it in the context, Jesus is the credit card for all the promises. He's the credit card. He paid for it. He's got all the credits you need. Right, But if you leave that credit card in your pocket and you don't run it through a processing center, you can't get the credit on that credit card to pay for everything that you want. Jesus is the payment. Faith is the processing center. When we release our faith, we avail ourselves to everything that Jesus has promised. Now, I could end there and I should end there, but but I got to go a little bit further. I'm going to close in a minute. Okay, The Abrahamic covenant was good. The law, if you obeyed it, had many blessings in it. But the new covenant is best of all. Yes? Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 6. 
but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. How many believe that the new covenant is better than the law? How many believe that? How many believe it's better than what Abraham had? Because we got the Holy Ghost. It, it, it's better than anything that has ever been in existence. Heaven is better. The blood is better. The Holy Ghost is better. It's better. Well, if it's better, here's my question. Should generosity be less? If it's better, should generosity be less? Did you know that the New Testament not only raises the standard of living, it raises the standard of giving? Is this too much for you? Should I, should I stop? Because I, I feel like I'm, some of y'all are getting drunk on the word a little bit right now, right? But you'd be at a baseball game cheering for 10 hours, not getting drunk. Actually, probably getting drunk. Anyway, the New Testament raises the standard of living and the standard of giving. Watch the standard of living go up. Matthew chapter 1. And I'll just give you one example. I could give you more, but I'll just give you one. You have heard that it was said, Matthew five twenty seven. You have heard that it was said. To those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody say, duh. Right? Should not commit adultery. That's pretty plain, right? But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in her heart. Look at how quiet all the men got. The men ain't even looking at their wives. Nobody be like. <laughs> what did the New Testament do? Did it reduce the standard of living? Or did it raise the standard of living. Why? Because now we're in Christ. Now we've been given a new spirit. Now we've been born again. Now our desire has changed. And now we don't do it just to get right with God because we're already right with God, but we do it because we love God and we want to give God everything we have. And so the standard of living goes up in the new covenant, not down. But guess what? So does the standard of giving. What is the standard of giving in the new covenant? It's generosity. What is generosity? Generosity is not stop at tithe. A tithe is not generous. I'm going to prove this to you. I need a volunteer, and we're going to close real quick. Can I get a volunteer? Somebody that doesn't mind being on stage, volunteer, volunteer, volunteer. Dion, you're my only volunteer. All right, come on up, and you can be my second volunteer. Come on up, hurry up. Okay. Dion, I just want you to know that before you get here, I am going to share... This bag of lollipops with you extravagantly, abundantly, bountifully, generously. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you such a generous share of these lollipops that it is gonna blow your mind. Are you happy about that? Imagine if this was money right here. Hold this for me. Now there's 360 lollipops in this bag. 360 lollipops. Hold this for me again. So I'm going to share generously, bountifully, abundantly, supernaturally with Kay Dion right now. Okay, ready? I'm going to grab you. I just gave her 36 lollipops. Say, Pastor... How did you know that's exactly 36? Because my hands are anointed. That is her generous portion. I'm going to keep all these for me. 
does give her generously, abundantly, supernaturally, bountifully? Or did I give her in such a way that she's cool, but I love me more than I love her? When you go into a restaurant, if you give a 10% tip, you're not generous. They're going to run out after you. Excuse me, sir. Was something wrong right there? Did you enjoy the service? Right? Now watch this. There is one way in which that is generous. Can you put them lollipops back in there? That's right. If, if some fill over, spill over on the floor, we'll be good with that. Thank you, KDM. Can you come up now? I need somebody to help me. I'm going to be God this time. I'm going to be God this time. And uh, he, he's going to be us. Come on, get a move on, man. We got time. We got to get the people out of here. They want to go home. Holding up the message. Why did you preach long today, Pastor? It was his fault. Okay. Now, let's just say that I'm God, right? Me, which, by the way, that means all these are mine. 100%. And by the way, David knew this, right? David said in, 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 in Second Chronicles, he said, God, all that we have is yours. The, the whole thing is God's, right? So I'm God. And, and I'm going to share with you bountifully, excessively, supernaturally, generous. Are you ready for that? Okay. So can you hold the mic for me a second? Thirty-six for me. I'm God. I'm gonna keep these thirty-six and hold on a second. Hold, hold out your arms. That's for you. I'm just gonna keep these, okay? You cool with that exchange? You all right getting all that? I'm just gonna, even though it's all mine. I mean, a hundred percent of it was mine. But I, I just told, just, just, just was gonna keep a little bit of it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's God. Can we realize what kind of God we serve? We serve a generous God. It's all his. Look at this guy. He's like a camera hawk. I said, thank you very much. You can be seated now. <laughs> Look at God. Everything belongs to God. And what does God do? He says, all that. He says, I, I just keep this on reserve here. What is the new standard? The New Testament standard of giving? 10% is the floor. It's not the ceiling. It's the minimum. Because we have a new covenant that's better. Generosity is the ceiling. What is generosity? Generosity is, is, is where the expression of our faith comes in. It's where the expression of our love comes in. It's, it's the ceiling in the New Testament is, is, is how much we can trust God. How much we love God. How much we want to express our faith in God. Now, let me give the disclaimer here. If you came in here today, maybe this was your first time. You're like, 10%, jeez, 10%. I got too many bills. Listen, listen, I understand that. Start pushing toward it, right? So saying, God, help me. Help me. Help me, God. I want to honor you. I want to get, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It should never be coercion. We, in our church, we never coerce nobody to give. We're going to love you the same whether you give nothing or whether you give 10%, which is your tithe, or whether you give above that. But what we are going to do is going to challenge you with truth. We're going to love you no matter what, but we're going to challenge you with truth. And so what we need to be, especially during these end times, we need to be generous givers. How many of you believe, and I'm not trying to set you up, and maybe if you don't, that's okay, I might feel bad, but how many believe the people of the world would benefit by hearing these messages. How many believe that, right? How many believe they need to hear these messages, right? 
There's only one way they're going to hear that. Is if they see it in front of their face all the time. That takes an extraordinary amount of resources to do that. And we're not all going to be able to do it, you know. But you know what? Together we can make a difference. We can get that word out there. Because that's what we are called to do in these end times. Amen. Would you stand on your feet? The most generous thing God ever did was because he loved. What time is it? Somebody give me a time. 10.30? Oh, that was, praise the Lord. That was, amen. The most generous thing God ever did for us was because he loved us. Here's a check it out. His love motivated his gift. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God broke the bank. He said, here's how much I love you. I'm going to be as generous as I can with you. I'm going to give you what means everything to me. I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to pay the price for you so that you can be made right with me. If you're here today and you haven't received God's love gift yet, God wants to give it to you. God wants to make you right with him based on nothing that you'll ever do other than exercise your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you have never made Jesus the Lord of your life, today God is asking you to surrender to him. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're watching on camera, if you're watching on one of our campuses and the Holy Spirit of God is touching your heart, and you feel the Holy Spirit ministering to you, say, you need to surrender your life to Jesus. This is for you. If you're here today, say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be made right with him. I want to know that I have eternal life. I want to know I'm forgiven of sin. Right where you are, no one looking around. Just put your hand up and I'm going to pray for you. I won't embarrass you, but I will pray for you. God bless you there in the back. That's awesome. Pastor, today, I just want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be made right with him. Anybody else? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You can put your hands down. At home, if, you're, if you felt the tug of God on your heart, hold your hands up right where you are there. We're going to pray for you. Let's all pray this together for the benefit of at least the, the few that just surrendered to Christ. Say this out loud with me. Heavenly Father, I give you my life. I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I receive him as full payment for my sin. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. If you raised your hand, an usher will find you, give you a little gift. If you're online and you responded, type Jesus in the chat. Click the hand in front of you. Come on out to one of our locations. God bless all of you. I'll see you Wednesday or tonight. Love you. See you again next week.